Welcome to Weird Studies, an arts and philosophy podcast with hosts Phil Ford and J.F. Martell. For more episodes or to support the podcast, go to weirdstudies.com. Welcome to Weird Studies. This is JF. They say miracles are past, and we have our philosophical persons to make modern and familiar things supernatural and causeless. Hence it is that we make trifles of terrors, ensconcing ourselves into seeming knowledge, when we should submit ourselves to an unknown fear. These aren't the words of H. P. Lovecraft, but of William Shakespeare, who wrote them around the year 1600. By philosophical persons, Shakespeare meant something like what we late moderns would call scientists, people who explain reality on the assumption that everything in it locks into an airtight system of cause and effect. Find the cause, and you dispel the appearance of miracle and wonder. You make the incredible modern and familiar. Ironically, the Aristotelian operating system that most scientists use in Shakespeare's day seems to us now as shot through with occult forces as the superstitions it fought against. That's what makes these lines from All's Well That Ends Well so interesting. Shakespeare isn't telling us that we need a better system, one that's more quote-unquote enchanted. He is saying that under a certain weird aspect, reality is impervious to all system thinking, that there is something so strange in the real that the only truly rational response to it is wonder and fear. We're talking about magic, of course, And nowhere in modern literature is magic more bravely championed than in Shakespeare's plays, first and foremost his darkest and weirdest, The Tragedy of Macbeth. Macbeth is about many things, time, fate, madness, modernity, the death of God, the mystery of evil, but all these are apprehended under the sign of pure, actual magic. Magic not just as portrayed in fairy tales and myths, but also as it manifests in reality. What's fascinating about Macbeth is how subtly magic weaves itself into the fabric of ordinary life. There is a moment early on where we realize that we've lost the plot. The play has upended all our assumptions about reason, agency, and causation. Is the warrior Macbeth under a spell? Or is he acting of his own volition? Is the universalized nightmare in the heads of the characters? Or is it boiling up from the Scottish soil? Both and neither. Once you see the supernatural and the causeless for what they are, nature itself becomes an instance of the supernatural, and causation becomes a kind of miracle. Macbeth is the focus of a series of online lectures and group discussions that I'll be starting on neurolearning on March 14th. At this point, I can say with full confidence that it's going to be a wild and weird trip. If you want to know more about it, there's a link in the show notes. Today's show isn't about Macbeth, but about Ramsey Duke's Sex Secrets of the Black Magicians Exposed, or Sasatbami for short. If you want to see sparks fly, though, you could do worse than read these two texts together. Sasatbami is, for my money, the best non-fiction introduction to the idea of magic, and this for two reasons. First, it doesn't ask you to abandon any of the basic tenets of modernity. 
Sasatbami doesn't require you to suspend disbelief by entertaining some occult notion or other, be it the existence of spiritual forces or the intervention of powerful deities, though either of these may be the case, of course. Second, and despite what I just said, Sasatbami confronts us with an idea of real, balls-to-the-wall magic. Dukes's clear and lucid prose makes us realize that we already know that magic is real. The question is whether we're willing to acknowledge that there is so much more in heaven and earth than is dreamt of in our scientific schemes, to borrow a line from another play by Shakespeare. This more isn't a hidden cause that someone might one day unearth. Rather, it is an essential aspect of reality that science broadly construed necessarily overlooks. The idea of causality so important to science has no bearing upon magic, Dukes writes. Believing in magic means seeing that magic happens. For happen it does, certainly, all the time. For Dukes, magic demonstrates and proves itself. No belief need apply. As Niels Bohr supposedly said when a friend asked him why he'd hung a horseshoe over his door, it works, even if you don't believe in it. Sex Magic of the Black Magicians Exposed is one of the foundational texts of our podcast. It was a pleasure to finally discuss it directly with Phil, who introduced me to it back in 2016, when Weird Studies was but a seed of time that had yet to sprout, as Banquo might say. But while Weird Studies is very special, it may not be magic in the sense just described, because it only works if you believe in it. And what better way to affirm that belief than to join our Patreon and toss a few bucks our way each month? For $3, you get access to exclusive essays, as well as Phil's ongoing podcast series on Wagner's Ring Cycle. You also get a significant discount on our online courses, including the upcoming one on Macbeth. For $6, you get a bonus episode every off week. Throw in a nude sigh, a frog's toe, or an owlet's wing, and then, well, so heck it help us. You'll be king or queen hereafter. Enjoy the show. I just watched a 35 millimeter print exhibition of David Lynch's Mulholland Drive last mm. week on Valentine's Day, no less. There was talk of my coming down for that. Loose talk. Yeah. Loose and irresponsible talk. Anyway, you were missed, but I Thanks. thoroughly enjoyed it. It is cool watching a film where there's like cigarette burns, the little changeover markings mm. and negative scratches and stuff like that. There was even a moment where the projectionist, probably a student learning how to do old school film projection, got it wrong. And there was a brief period where there was some trouble in switching out film reels. Ah, that kind of shit makes me feel nostalgic. Yeah. I love that there is a performance aspect, a live performance aspect to watching films in a cinema. It's that the projectionist is performing. Yes, that's right. They have to switch those reels. Which uh, it carries on from the, well, I guess it was the last Patreon extra we did where we talked about film as a live medium or film as an exhibition medium. But actually, that is not what I wanted to talk about. The idea that struck me so I was watching a film that I've watched many, 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 many times. One of my favorite films. There's a scene that you doubtless remember where we make a cut 
to a bunch of people singing around a microphone, five people singing mm -hmm. 16 Reasons Why I Love You. It's an old song from the 50s, right? Or maybe very early 60s, can't remember. You know the scene I'm talking about? It's been a while since I've watched Mulholland Drive, but it, it definitely rings a bell. Yeah, it's a scene of people dressed in period garb. So, you know, yep. dressed up like they're from the 50s with the hairdos from the 50s, singing a doo-wop song, like a harmony song. So we have a hard cut from the preceding scene where Betty just nailed her audition and an agent grabs her and is like, let's go over to this soundstage. And so we have right. this cut and then we have this tight shot on the main singer and then the shot pulls back and we see the four other people who are singing harmony. Right. I think I'm remembering this right. Okay. And then the camera keeps going and we realize and we can see that they are in just a stage flat. In a movie studio. In a movie studio. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then it's followed by, this is the girl, Camilla Rhodes singing. Yes. Every little star. So there's actually two musical performances. And one thing I love about David Lynch, always have, is that he gives you long musical performances. Yes. Entire songs. Whole songs, which yeah. is pretty rare. Yeah. And you see the artifice of these people dressed up in period costume, looking as artificial as fuck. Like they might as well have stepped off a lunar lander or something for all they belong to the world of the film as has previously been established. But then the camera moves back and it reveals the artifice, right? Right. What our eyes and ears take in right after that cut is new reality. People from the middle of the 20th century are singing. Let's see where this goes. It's a David Lynch film. Fucking anything can happen, right? And then you realize, like, oh, it's a picture within a picture. Yeah. It's very explicitly framed that way. Here is a picture of people doing a thing which is fictive and the low-hanging fruit interpretation and one that I think was really common when people were reviewing Mulholland Drive when it first came out is this is all about the conflict between reality and fantasy. Right. Where fantasy is revealed to be a sad, shabby Band-Aid that you've stuck over the ugly, grim reality of your life. Mm -hmm. Right. And so the number of people who said things like Mulholland Drive is a stinging indictment of the Hollywood star system or whatever, which to me is completely tone deaf. David Lynch never did a stinging indictment of anything except possibly human evil. Well, in fact, if you listen to him um, pontificate on Hollywood, he, he actually loves it. He loves LA. He loves it as a, a city of dreams. And I mean, he's a big yeah, he fan. Loves, yeah. Well, this is where I'm going. He loves it yeah. because it's dreamy, which by the way, is also why I like LA. I realize everybody, most people don't, but I actually quite like LA when I visit it. I'm not sure I'd want to live there, but that's a whole separate question. Mm. If I did, I would want to live in that fucked up looking house that's in Lost Highway. Right. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. I want to, um, I want to live behind the, behind the diner there. <laughs> you're What's the you're the guy that's doing it. <laughs> well, anyway, the point that I'm trying to make here, I'm sorry, this has taken me a long time. If this is an opening gambit, I'm running out the chess clock on my yeah, uh, yeah exactly. I'm taking a long fucking time with this gambit. Um, the easy thing is to say there's a reality and there's a kind of fake reality, you know, just a narrative, right? Mm. And that the shape of that film is in a sense recapitulated in that shot that I just described. We have a picture, 
we're sort of accepting it naively as a picture of a, some reality that we're watching in a, a movie about. And then as the camera pulls back, we realize that it's all, I mean, as that sinister MC at, at Silencio says, it this is, is all, all a, a recording. Yeah, yeah. You know that I don't usually like that move. I always say that the ending of Wizard of Oz to me is one of the greatest betrayals in all of imaginative fiction because you take it all back, right? You have this incredible, fantastic adventure. And at the end, you realize she just got knocked on the head. Right. And imagine that all of her friends were these fantastical characters. Mm -hmm. Fucking bullshit. I hate that. Uh, The cool stuff is just just quote unquote imaginary. And then back in fucking boring ass Kansas. And that's real. It's yeah. We can thank Freud for that that move which becomes kind of almost kind of reflexive in the 20th century yeah and my point is what happens in that shot and throughout that entire film is the so-called illusion has its own integrity it is its own story it is not a linear plot tracking part of the story that we've been seeing up to this point but that in no way eliminates any of its dignity and worth as a standalone embedded little shard of a world. Right. And the whole thing with Lynch is that he maintains relativity as we move from one frame of reference to another. Each one has its own, uh, its own Dharma position. <laughs> he used this weird word of Dogen's. It's own. Yeah. yeah. Just to clarify for the listeners. Yeah. What he's saying is that every object has its own Dharma position. Mm-hmm. <laughs> exactly. I, I felt I just needed to get that out. Yeah. <laughs> At the risk of oversimplifying things. <laughs> um, there's a, you know, there's a line in the book we're discussing today, which we'll get to in a moment. Quote, the word illusion does not have negative connotations in magic because all is considered to be an illusion. But when all is considered to be an illusion... What is an illusion? Why would you even use that word? The thing is that David Lynch has a magical mind. And so for Lynch, the dream sequence in the film is as real as the so-called real world sequences, right? Exactly. They all happen on one plane in the language of Ramsey Dukes or Lionel Snell. We'll get that in a second. I just don't want to go there just yet because I want to stay with your your gambit. Um, We might say that there's an image world. The world is composed of images and all the images, Mm -hmm. some of them are solid and fixed and resistant. And therefore we end up calling those things material. And some of them are more ephemeral, ethereal. They shift. They're more analog. They're less digitally, you know, containable in our minds. So therefore we call those imaginary. But if anything, the material world is a subset of the imagination, a subset of the image world. So I think it's clear that David Lynch approaches his films and approaches reality from that perspective, from a a fundamentally kind of magical perspective. And so when, when you're watching Mulholland Drive, which I agree, of all his films, it's the one that seems to assert it seems to assert a kind of um, base materialism. I don't mean base in like uh, the sense of like vulgar. I just mean a, right. a, a base kind of default materialism. Yeah. And of course, Zizek has made great use of that in his analysis of Mulholland Drive, where you know the first part of the film is a dream. You know, the great innovation of Mulholland Drive is that he starts in the dream sequence, and then you get the reality after. Right? right, halfway through the film, she wakes up from the dream, and then you see with the drab reality. So it's like you start in Oz, and then you wake up in Kansas, right? And you have to figure out that the whole first bit was the dream sequence. I don't think that that's a false interpretation, but I do believe that what he's doing is more of like 
a kind of inferno where the characters are moving through different planes of the real, none of which is more real than the others, right? Yes. And then even within the dream sequence, you have those mise en abîme scenes like you just described, where you have a kind of framed uh, scene, like those singers, and then you zoom out and you see that, oh, that's just a dream. That's just a dream on the stage set mm -hmm. in the studio. But the thing is that the reality of all things is kind of negotiated with other things. There's no stable, fixed substrate that we can rely on and say that is real and the rest was imaginary. Right. That is real and the rest was illusion. Everything is an illusion. Which comes down to saying everything is real exactly. in a certain sense, which is in fact what Dukes slash Snell says at the beginning of chapter five, Fantasy Worlds, where he says, just as magic theory avoids tangled arguments about causality by allowing causal connections to be total, so does it avoid existence arguments by assuming that everything exists. Exactly. Everything exists. Everything that you can imagine exists at least as image. Yeah. At least is the wrong phrase to, to inject there. Exists as image, some of that materializes. Yeah. Uh, and even that is a fuzzy area. Like Precisely. For example... You can't see a cube. You have to imagine part of the cube to have a concept of a cube. You can see a die, like a six-sided die here. But I can only see three sides at most, but my imagination can supply the rest. So the world is already a kind of interlacing of image and things already. Even if we want to assume a kind of base materialism, you can't really make it work unless you allow for much of the material world to exist as primarily as image insofar as anyone's experience of it is concerned. I, I want to say one more thing before, just in response to your gambit. The source of all my metaphysics is old school Dungeons and Dragons. So hmm. <laughs> in, in, Dungeons, in the original game, in, well, so I'm, I'm thinking of advanced Dungeons and Dragons. So in Gary Gygax's advanced Dungeons and Dragons, which came out in the late 70s and was made, basically the, the game that most people played until the 90s, there's a class, you can be a magic user, which is a kind of like wizard, or you can be an illusionist. But an illusionist creates illusions, whereas the magic user does, I, I suppose, real magic. But check this out. So a really powerful wizard could create a human figure. I think the spell is called clone or, no, it's called um, simulacrum, if I mm. remember correctly. So you create this kind of fake human um, you can see this human, you can touch, you can interact with them, they can act in the world. For all intents and purposes, they are real. Or you can create major illusion, which allows you to create a full human that you can touch, interact with, see, hear, and yet is, however, just an illusion. But in terms of material fact, these two creations, the creation of the illusionist, the creation of the wizard, are absolutely identical. It's just that one is called an illusion and one is called real. Like what I yeah. mean is that illusions are themselves always already magical in that universe. And I love yeah. that because it assumes the kind of fundamental realness of the imaginable as such. And yes. then out of that, mysteriously, a causal material world emerges out of that plethora, that kind of chaos of possibilities, a stable world emerges. And I'll end with this. Like, there's this great tweet yesterday that I retweeted by a, he's a philosopher of some sort. Nigel Thompson on Twitter yesterday tweeted, for you to feel non-miraculous is a profound miracle, <laughs> you know? And, <laughs> and what I mean is that, 
like what, what he means or what I interpret him to mean is that the emergence of a causal world that we can then use to discredit the imaginary world is itself an imaginal event of an inexplicable imaginal event. And I think that's one of the central conceits of, of Snell's book. But anyways, that's my rambling reaction to your gambit. Well, I enjoyed your rambling reaction. I'm okay. glad that you were able to work D&D into it because I feel like that. Yeah. And scratch that off my list for today. Yes. It's an important leitmotif. <laughs> um, so those who, like, for example, you who know Sasatpami very well will immediately understand why I let off with that example from David Lynch uh -huh. and talking more generally about David Lynch's approach of treating everything as having its own worth and value and its own, I don't know, its own dharma position. Integrity. As story. Yeah. 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 Its own integrity, right? It may not be obvious to our listeners, most of whom I'm assuming have not read Sasatvami. So the reason that I bring this up simply is because, I mean, as I guess we've already uh, talked about this a little bit, Dukes slash Snell approaches magic and also science and also art and also religion as a competency of the human as a mode of perception, mm -hmm. as a way of being in the world. And he understands these four orientations, magic, art, religion, science, around a, a sort of compass rose, not of categories, but of directions. Yeah. An orientation that every individual human being can take, maybe in a more magic word direction, maybe in a more science word direction, and so on. Yeah. But the thing that a lot of people get wrong about his way of thinking is that they think that he is speaking categorically where he's not. And it becomes not a way of closing things down or shutting them up in little containers where we are inevitably going to have to come up with tests and arguments for why something would fall into this container or that container. He manages to avoid all of that. And it is very good that he does, that the system of his theory that he comes up with is open enough that allows him to assert exactly what you and I've been saying, an idea that everything from one point of view is sort of illusion. Maya. At the, yeah, or Maya, but at the same time, everything should be treated as if it exists. Brahma. <laughs> Very good. Yeah. So maybe what would make sense would be for us to talk about the heart of the theory, which is presented in the first chapter yeah. in a kind of diagram. And this is the limitation of the podcast medium because I can't ask you to see something while I'm talking. But maybe, dear listener, you can visualize something. Imagine an axis, a horizontal line. Imagine on the left side of the line, we write the word feeling. If that word feels a little squishy and vague to you, you could also write pattern recognition, but let's say feeling. Yeah, yeah. Stick with feeling. We'll get there. Yeah. <laughs> On the right side of the line, I want you to write in thinking. You could also think, put in reasoning or... Uh, Intellect. Causality. Okay. Thinking and feeling. That is an opposition of two terms bracketing our horizontal line. Then I want you to draw a vertical line that crosses this line so that we have an even-armed cross. And at the top of our diagram that is now not a line but a cross, the top we write intuition. 
and at the bottom we write sensation. I'm going to read something I wrote in a little essay that I published on the Patreon some time ago, just because that this will take me less time than trying to freestyle. Mm. In Sasatbami and later works, Snell, writing under the pen name Ramsey Dukes, expanded on the two cultures' idea of C.P. Snow. In the 1950s, Snow tried to resolve conflicts between the discursive domains of art and science, in other words, people arguing about whether we should study only science in universities or whether art should be put on a scientific footing or what, and C.P. Snow suggested that each art and science represents an autonomous culture founded in a particular and sovereign way of experiencing the world. Beginning in the 1970s, Snell sought to understand magic in a similar way, but within a fourfold rather than twofold division of our cognitive and perceptual capacities, art, science, religion, and magic. To do this, he created a tetrad diagram formed by two crossed axes, which we've already described, each of which refers to a different pair of mental dispositions, sensation slash intuition, that's the vertical axis, and feeling slash thinking, that's the horizontal axis. This general schema will be familiar to Jungians, and Jung in turn inherited something like it from the Western esoteric tradition. Sensation and intuition are the wellsprings of thought, the first stage of cognition. How do ideas, impressions, representations, moods, images, etc. get in in the first place? We either sense them, as when we see a scorpion or smell cooking food, or we intuit them. When we sense things, they are coming to us from the phenomenal world around us. What we intuit seems to come from inside us, an inner prompting. This could mean a thought, a dream, a voice from God, or an essay like the one I'm reading from. The other axis describes the second motion of thought. Once we have our impressions, what do we make of them? On one side is thinking, for which you can substitute reason or logic, and on the other side is feeling. Regardless of whether things are coming in by way of intuitions or sense impressions, once they're in your mind, do you put them into discrete categories and causal sequential order, or do you consider instead whether a given grouping is meaningful or beautiful or just generally feels right? In Snell's way of thinking, human consciousness works its way through the world by taking a direction somewhere on this compass rose. You can kind of think of now of this fourfold scheme as a, as a compass. Each of the four cultures emerges at the intersection of two directions. For example, magic, like the other cultures, is a, quote, technique by which the human mind attempts to operate upon its world. That's a quote from the very beginning of Sisopomy. But it is distinguished by its reliance on sense input organized by feel. Feel is a rather vague word. So pattern recognition is better. Um, I think it's better, but your mileage may vary anyway. So I just read that from this little essay I wrote, and I hope that at least begins to give us an idea of this diagram that is, I find, very helpful because it's very simple for understanding all of the arguments that follow. And he's using the kind of uh, Jungian tetrad of psychological function here. He's starting with right. with Jung. Uh, Jung called it thinking, intuition, sensing, and feeling. And I guess one zone where there might be some ambiguity is intuition versus feeling, because feeling right. for Snell is not emotion. In fact, his definition of feeling resonates very strongly with Langer's definition of feeling, which we discussed, I think it was in our last episode, right? 
or the the one before uh, last? No, two two episodes ago. Yeah, Snell. Um, or should we say Snell or Dukes? Uh, I because I know him a little bit personally. I always end up calling him Snell, whether or not I intend to. So let's just say, say Lionel. <laughs> uh, that Lionel, yes, Lionel has made a career of writing things with different assumed identities, which I think has a kind of a literary value and which I get because you can kind of be a different person depending on the kind of argument you're making. But in any event, it's all the same dude, Lionel Snell. My great greatest mistake was to give my different person my name. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, so the... J.F. Martell wrote Reclaiming Art, but not that J.F. No, Martell. Not the one who's speaking now. Um, <laughs> I think that, you know, a good kind of... um reference point we might use in the, the wider culture would be Star Wars, the way feeling is used in Star Wars, right? Search your feelings, Luke, or I have a bad feeling about this. Feeling is basically the sense of meaning or the sense of significance one gets from a circumstance or a situation or a kind of perception. It's much bigger than emotion. Uh, feeling is not just sadness or joy. In fact, those are just kind of cheap encapsulations of regions of feeling, which Langer describes as a kind of vast, almost infinite fabric that is as essential to our experience as our thinking faculties. So we live in a world that can be thought or it can be felt. And thought and feeling are constantly in dialogue with one another. And Jung sees it very similarly. Now, how is feeling different from intuition? Like, would it be the same if Han Solo said, I have a bad intuition about this, or search your intuition, Luke, and you know, you know it's true, you know? <laughs> um, well, it's different because intuition is a kind of perception, not a, and feeling is a kind yeah. of, for lack of a better, Jung uses this term, judgment. Judgment in the sense yeah. that you make a decision in feeling. You, you feel a decision, or the need to make a decision. So at one point, Snell says, the long hissy thing that is a snake is a perception, but the feeling of danger when you see long hissy things, that's a feeling, or, or the, the sense that such a thing might be dangerous. And the reason why I resist pattern recognition is because it muddles things a bit for me. Hmm. At one point in the book, he describes um, on page five into page six, he's contrasting scientific thinking and magical thinking. And he writes, if you notice that the traffic lights are always red when you're in a desperate hurry and you dismiss your observation on logical grounds, then you are thinking scientifically. If instead you accept your observation and try next time to banish the feeling of desperation from your mind in order to avoid red lights, you are thinking magically. So here he's saying that noticing that the traffic light is always red when I'm in a hurry, he describes that as an observation, but in a sense, that's pattern recognition, which would be feeling. Like, and, mm. and, and you know, to, in his defense, he's not trying to be scientific, right? That's not the point. He's trying to give us a compass rose to navigate complex kind of phenomenological realities that we all experience, but we don't have names for. So I yeah. love the word feeling because it's concrete. When I say I have a bad feeling about this, or I have a good feeling about that, we all know that this doesn't connote an emotion, but rather a sense of the reality inherent in something which has yet to fully disclose itself. That's more than pattern okay. recognition. Anyways, okay. Yeah. I will never call it pattern never recognition do that. again. <laughs> I'm so sad that he did that. 
<laughs> um, I'm angry. I'm angry about that. Okay. I've written like six uh, angry letters. And um, <laughs> okay. And and I think the next bit is that these four faculties, feeling, thinking, intuition, sensation, he calls it observation. Sometimes he calls it sensation. These four things allow for us to think of religion, magic, art, and science in a new way. To see each of yeah. these cultures, as he calls them, using C.P. Snow's term, as modes of existence. Modes of existence that overlap. They're not like mutually exclusive. He's also yeah. very careful about that. Because his theory is what he calls a magical theory, it doesn't come down to whether the theory is true or not. It comes down to how useful the theory is for making sense of things, of experience. Exactly. And so the theory is fractal. It, it'll scale down. So within yeah. science, you will find a magical quarter, a religious quarter, an art quarter, and a, and a science quarter, right? And within each quadrant, you can use the same compass infinitely, right? That's what makes this book so amazing. And what I love about this book is that it is my favorite book on magic. Mine too. Yeah, because it gathers up all that magic has been, the ceremonial magic, which many people think when they think about magic, chaos magic, whatever. And it presents it all in this way that is fully modern, which is what I love about Snell. Yes. He doesn't insert, inject, or sneak in any notion, any organ or ether or, uh, you know, God yeah. or force that would require you to be a little bit credulous. He doesn't ask you yeah. to believe in anything new. He's telling you what you already know. Magic for Snell means magic. If I blow fireballs out of my fingertips, that's, well, that's magic. Um, if, I, <laughs> if I levitate off the ground, that's magic. If I say this will happen tomorrow and it does, that's magic. The point is magic is a-causal events, events that are meaningful, but that have no necessary causal force behind them. We'll get to that maybe. When philosophers criticize each other by saying, oh, well, I can see you're just making a magical leap there. So we go from dead matter to conscious matter. That's what, by magic? Yes, exactly. That's yeah, pretty much. That's what yeah. Snell needs, my magic. And so he begins in a place that we all kind of understand. Then what he does is he legitimates that way of thinking. It's, it's fantastic. He doesn't ask us to believe anything new except pluralism. He yeah. asks us to accept a kind of pluralism that I think is for some people very difficult. So like when we were at DC this summer, I delivered a talk that has as a, a kind of a central hinge point, a fairly long quote from Sasatomi. And I think that there were a lot of people who seemed very interested in me talking about chaos magic, invoking chaos magic, which is a current of magic that Dukes has been associated with, though not as directly, perhaps, as someone like Phil Hine or Pete Carroll. So this is a passage that I read aloud at DC. It should be growing clear by now that dogmatism has absolutely no place in magic, whereas in religion and in science, as will be explained later, it has such a key role that it needs to be very carefully monitored. Simply because dogmatism has no place in magic, it is traditionally welcomed as a guest of honor. So a typical introduction to astrology might well begin with the dogmatic statement, We are, every one of us, under the influence of the stars. Even though a majority of astrologers think in terms of synchronicity or cycles rather than influences, 
and those who do work with an influence model are far more likely to use planetary than stellar influences. Another magical book might begin with a statement such as, Beyond the realm of the senses there exist dark forces which govern this world, mighty powers mastered by a priestly caste before the fall using secret knowledge which has since been available to a select few who hold the keys to the most secret inner temples of the Adepti. That's the Eliphas Levy to a T. <laughs> Terrific stuff and damn good magic for those lucky enough to be able to swallow all that. Unfortunately for magic, however, our scientific education has somewhat constricted the throat against such stuff. Science values truth as highly as the finest wine, to be sipped, not gulped, while magic is more inclined to knock back truth with gusto than concentrate on sipping at whatever experience then results. Mm, I like that. Me too. Yeah. Chaos magic allows for such modern sensibilities by putting the dogma through a blender. A typical eight-word blender is, let us adopt a belief system in which... Dot, 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 and then follows the above crap about dark forces. The word paradigm makes a useful blender for over-scientific sensibilities. What the chaos magician is putting into practice is Austin Spare's principle of acting as if. As will be explained in my example in Chapter 3a, the correct approach to a magical theory or model is not to seek to disprove it as one would with a scientific theory, but to see if you can convince yourself that it is true by acting as if it were true. If this results in the theory working, quote-unquote, then you rejoice in it as a practical tool. What you do not do is assume, therefore, that it must be, quote-unquote, true in any significant sense. I read that and the point I was making in the paper that I was reading, I was saying basically when you find weird sort of hidden patterns in a piece of art, such yeah. patterns and their discovery being the starting point of pretty much every act of scholarly interpretation there ever was. Yeah. We never asked the question, what put the pattern there? Because we always sort of say, well, the author did, but much of my argument is dedicated to breaking down our, as it turns out, naive and unsupportable assumptions about where these patterns come from and what relationship they might have with authorial intent. And I'm saying basically that when you encounter these kind of strange, uncanny patterns in works of art, or for that matter, anything you're studying in a serious way, what you're actually encountering is something like magic. You're encountering strange synchronicities, weird omens and augurs for which you have no decent rational account. Yeah. And so given that, then you can say, I say, that the interpretation of art gives us access to real magic, yeah, actual real, magic. Yeah. yeah, exactly. A great example of this, one of my favorites, is McLuhan's interpretation of King Lear in Gutenberg Galaxy where he basically interprets King Lear as a comment upon or a kind of study or analysis of the breakdown of the senses in um, the visual culture with his focus on print and the eye and technique and everything else. The question, of course, is, well, did Shakespeare intend that? And it's like the minute you ask that question, just the whole thing starts to feel ridiculous. Like, no, no, Shakespeare was obviously writing a great poetic tragedy about this character, King Lear, and it was, you know, like, and yeah. yet... What can you do with McLuhan's theory? Well, I think the, you know. Or any number of other readings that are possible in the same text. Other readings that are possible. And the question is, well, is this merely pattern recognition? 
pareidolia, seeing faces yeah. in the clouds, or is it picking up on a kind of interrelatedness of all things that allow and in fact demand such interpretive acts of magical scrying? And I would argue for the latter, and that, but that's only because as someone who thinks magically, I you know, what is it? What is it? I shot down, like I, sh- I took a, a strong, take stiff, a big slug gulp of truth at the beginning, <laughs> which is that all is illusion, all is real. Mm-hmm. You know, nothing is unreal. If I can imagine it, it's real. Yeah. And then I can allow myself to distinguish between scientific theories that have a particular aim and purpose and magical theories that have a more heuristic, more imaginal kind of uh, function, but are n- nevertheless true in that domain in that sense yeah so yeah. like McLuhan's interpretation of King Lear is true because it helps us experience more reality you know yes. and we might say the same of the embedded and nested narratives in the David Lynch film of course exactly yeah. exactly So now to continue with like talking about not so much my argument in that paper, but the way people engaged with it, I didn't anticipate that that particular bit that I read would end up being both a point of fascination and a point of friction. But I think the challenge there was an idea of pluralism that in a situation like that, you would use a blender to, as it were, domesticate an idea. So one example I came up with in my talk was like, well, you know, among academic humanists, the blender might be like the word lens. Like, let's look at King Lear through the lens of uh, McLuhan's theory of morality and literacy. That would be one way of doing it. But the point is that I'm looking at an argument in a way that I'm neither negating it nor affirming it. Simply saying that as an idea, it has different potentialities depending on whether we're approaching it from a magical dispensation or a scientific one or an artistic one or a religious one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. There's one young man particularly who I had several conversations with. He's like, yeah, but which one is true? Which one is actually true? 
Right. And it's the actually true part that's the challenge. That's the thing I think that Snell, Lionel, is asking us to do. It's like he's not asking us to imagine dark forces or influences from the stars, but he is asking us to imagine that there are different frames within which we can understand astrology as influences from the star or as stuff and nonsense or whatever. And the question of which perspective is quote unquote really true, he sticks inside a black box, locks it, throws the key away to the bottom of the Marianas Trench. <laughs> you will never find the key. You will never open the black box. And he asks us simply to hang out at the level of that camera panning back. Yeah. He's asking us to retain this moment of, I guess I would say, relativity. Yeah. What we are not doing, to define it negatively, what we are not doing is saying, yeah, but really it's the scientific view that wins. Or really, it's the magical view that wins. Yeah. Nobody wins. That, to me, is the one indispensable thing that Lionel is asking us to swallow when we read this book. You know, it has to do, like I earlier was saying, that you know, humans live in a world of thought, but also in a world of feeling. And those faculties imply different conceptions of truth. And so... I like that the student asks you which one is actually true, because I wouldn't have a problem saying the scientific theory is actually true, but the other one is virtually true. And that's because I have a nifty dyad from Deleuze, or from Bergson through Deleuze, of the virtual and the actual, neither of which is more or less real than the other. Ah, but then you're using, you're kind of bandying words, because when someone says actually, they mean the one that wins. Yeah, because they don't understand etymology. They don't know what the words they're using mean. Actual is a word from medieval metaphysics that means that acts and virtual is something that exists at the level of potential. Because we are so scientifically minded, we think actuality and truth are the same thing, but they're not. There's mm, a lot of things mm. that are true. Is it true that, that it might snow tomorrow or that they'll, the famous example, that there'll be a naval battle tomorrow? Yes, it is true that there might be. It's virtually true. What is actual is what comes to pass. And I don't think we want to jettison the idea that what comes to pass has a kind of truth of its own. We don't want to yes. relativize that kind of truth because then we're in QAnon land. Yes, exactly. So how do we preserve our sense of actual truth while allowing for a notion of virtual truth? Now, maybe I'm being too categorical about it. It's just one way of entering into what is essentially a kind of labyrinth that is negotiated in the moment every minute of our lives because thought does not have authority over feeling or vice versa. Right. But I think that when Nietzsche was questioning truth, he was saying that truth had become too kind of fossilized in the idea of the actual that we needed to have a truth that's available to art, to artists, that is not the same as scientific truth, such that you can't just take an artwork, for example, and just translate it into scientific terms without losing anything, but that the truth of the artist had to be of a different order than the truth of the police detective or the truth of the scientist. In fact, I would even distinguish between those two, because science doesn't get truth. And this is something that I, maybe this a problem I have with Snell's idea of science, because science doesn't deal in truth. Science deals in models that are tested against 
the truth of an outside world that is simply what it is, whether we're there or not, it assumes that, then it runs experiments. And of course, no scientific theory is valid as a scientific theory unless it's falsifiable. In other words, unless it is potentially untrue. And so mm. truth is another one of those, it's such a vague word, precisely because we live in a pluralistic universe. Because we live yeah. in pluralism, you can't have a monolithic idea of truth apply in every case. Yes. Truth means different things and to different people at different times for different reasons. Uh, what I love about Snell is that his idea of magic kind of just brings that, that truth, the truth of the relativity of all truths, right to the forefront and makes it central. Yeah. Only a magician could conceive of the quadripartite kind of distribution of these four cultures as he does. You know, yeah. you have to be a magician to see that religion, science, art, and magic can coexist with equal access to truth of some sort, and that one might be more useful in one situation than another, and that they all kind of have their place in the pluralistic universe. Pluralism is the key word. I think you've nailed it there. That's exactly what he's asking us to embrace as a truth. <laughs> yeah. And if you can do that, then this book is like, I don't know, I think about movie tropes that I grew up with because they showed old movies from the 30s and 40s on TV Ontario when I was a kid. People falling into quicksand, that's one of them that I feel like there are certain tropes that I feel like you don't see them so much anymore. People always used to fall in quicksand. Yeah. I grew up thinking that there was quicksand on every corner. Yeah, me you know, too. But it uh, turns out, no, not, not yeah. true. Although apparently there is quicksand somewhere on the beaches in St. Andrew. Yeah, I've heard that it does exist. Yeah. There is such a thing as quicksand, yeah. So next time we're there, I'm going to try to trick you into falling into quicksand. Let's do a kind of YouTube video. Yeah, we should. One of us can hold a rope and just dive in head first, and the other guy pulls him, pulls him out of the quicksand. How much do you want to bet we would just bonk off the... Yeah. It would just be like a slightly squishier version of normal ground. <laughs> be like, ow, that hurts. <laughs> that would make a great YouTube short. That really would, actually. Yeah. 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 Um, anyway, another of my favorite tropes is putting the, the metal file in the cake that you give to your buddy who's in jail. Like sneak the oh yeah <laughs> sneak the file in so he can saw his way to freedom, right? Yeah. Um, to me, sasatbami is an iron file that you can slip into a cake that you bake for your friend. Right. They're trapped by the confinements of modern styles of thinking. Yeah. And you and I have said often that uh, we're not interested in abolishing the modern. It's not about some kind of attempted throwback to some putative earlier, better tradition or something like that. Like you've often said, the problem is not that we're modern. The problem is that we're not modern enough. Yeah. And I feel like Sasatomi is a book that really puts a bow on that thought. I think Lionel is asking us to follow through certain ways of thinking that come naturally to moderns, ways that may, they may not come naturally to other people throughout history, but that allow us freedom from those aspects of modern thought that also cage us. Yeah. And uh, I sometimes teach a doctoral seminar, music and esoteric studies, and have assigned this book. In fact, Lionel once came and talked to one of my classes, which was great. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, that was the seminar that I offered in COVID times, which was 100% online. Um, oh, right. Okay. But I was imagining there physically. And you were, you also appeared, quote unquote, in that. Yeah. Uh, you appeared virtually. Yeah, I did. But, um... 
I operated. But this, I have had so many students who bought that book either because I recommended it or because I assigned it for whom it became a favorite book and a book that they themselves have gifted to many of their friends. And always for the same reason that like you read it and you feel the sort of sanity dawning on you. It makes you actually more open-minded, more flexible in the face of what our modern world might propose. Yeah. And it does so exactly in the way that you've described, so long as people can relax around the idea of a non-rivalrous truth. Right. Well, I think he's essentially arguing, if we want to find a kind of like philosophical pedigree for what he's proposing, you could go to American pragmatism or something like that, where mm -hmm. truth becomes what is helpful in the moment, what is good enough to work with. But I think the real affordance of what he's offering is simply a way of thinking, which we've explored in different ways on the show. For example, in our I Thou discussions of saying thou to the tree or thou to your car when it breaks down, mm -hmm. right? Personifying or anthropomorphizing things. Uh, he makes a really strong, almost kind of scientific argument for that, which I find very interesting. Page 57, when we address a complex problem, for example, the weather or market forces, a misbehaving car or crowd, then greater brain power is available if we anthropomorphize the problem. So what he means by that is that if you go, what's wrong with the car? And you see your car is just an assembly of like dead inert parts that have been combined. Then your quest is finding the one part that's not working. But if you think of your car as, as a whole, as a kind of creature, then you start to think of it holistically. Then you think of it, well, where has that car been recently? What's been going, you know, what's this car been through? Um, how have I been treating this car? You're using more of your brain to think about the problem. And yes, of course, eventually it'll narrow down to some part. But he thinks that from a purely heuristic point of view, approaching things from this sense of their being sentient, their being alive, affords you deeper kind of perception. It gives you uh, deeper insight into the nature of things. Yeah, he says, mechanistic explanations for things are not a separate category from psychological ones, but merely a subset. Um, he writes, most yeah. human behavior can eventually be solved and resolved into mechanical reactions, but nevertheless, most interpersonal problems are more rapidly solved if you treat the other person as a human being rather than a complex mechanism. Imagine treating your wife yeah. as though she was just an assembly of parts. See where that gets you. Exactly. Yeah. Well, I'm glad that you brought that up because actually one of the things that occurs to me to bring up in this context is Jack Parsons. So Jack Parsons now... It's fairly well known because I think there have been a couple of shows that have dramatized his life and there have been a couple of books about his life. But Jack Parsons is sort of the spiritual father of the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. He was a scientist, rocket scientist, working in the early years of the post-World War II era in the United States. And he is one of the people who really got the rocketry program off the ground. Yeah. Also an occultist. He was a thelemite. And he's an important figure in a West Coast American culture at the time. Very interesting life. He died young. He probably blew himself up. But of course, occultists being occultists, there are all kinds of conspiracy theories about that. He did work with L. Ron Hubbard. L. Ron Hubbard was a practicing occultist and Hubbard and Parsons worked together on some working, I forget which one. They were trying to summon Babylon, weren't they? 
Oh yes, that's right. The Babylon working. Geez, yeah. how that's it's the working, right? Yeah. Um, there's a whole story there. But on the eve of a launch of a rocket that he had either designed or at least helped design, Parsons performed an invocation to Pan. Right. So here is a high-end scientist with a real legacy of scientific work who is presumably doing all of the scientific things you do to prepare for a launch and to design a rocket, but he's also delivering an invocation to Pan. Why? How would we make sense of that behavior? Cynically, we could say, well, it's suspenders and a belt. Like, it's something like Pascal's wager. Right. Like, you do everything that you can that you know is supposed to help with the practical operations of a, a rocket launch. And if you also perform a magical invocation, hey, it probably won't hurt. And if there's some non-zero chance it might help, then why would you not do it? Right? I think that's a fairly shallow way to understand what's going on in a situation like that. The fact is that for Parsons, as for any magical operator, the real is split into actual and virtual. And all of the stuff he does as a scientist is aimed at the actual performance of the rocket. Yeah. The invocation to Pan, however, is about potentiality, possibility. Yeah. And the management thereof. So like what a scientist, of course, is wanting to do in any operation is to remove variables. So I'm thinking of a famous rocket that launched badly or that, that was not successful, the Challenger disaster, right? where cold temperatures, unusually cold Florida temperatures resulted in rubber O-rings shrinking and losing integrity during the uh, forces of takeoff. Yeah. That is a factor, a variable that was beyond the calculation of the scientists. As outside their calculation. Didn't exist in the virtual world, i.e. the magical world that scientists create in order to think of, and I'm complicating things, but the point is they have to reduce the universe to a certain subset of its totality in order to make a prediction. That's what a laboratory is essentially. It's a a way to banish most of the universe and keep only those parts of it you need. So when they do the calculations pertaining to the rocket, they can't include all the variables, which are literally infinite. <laughs> yes, uh, so, exactly. Yeah. And so no matter how good your science is, you will always be dealing with what military planners called unknown unknowns. Right. The shit you don't know that you don't know. And it seems to me that, I mean, at least if I were a scientist working on the successful launch of a technical project, you're goddamn right I would perform an invocation to Pan or whatever relevant deity might happen along because I am aware that I've only been able to prepare for the relatively limited number of actual things that are kind of in the sphere of my knowledge and, you know, in the sphere of things I can do something about. I have no idea if like a bird is going to fly by and bonk into the rocket as it's lifting off in just such a ways to knock it off course or cause some system to fail or whatever. It's those aspects of things. I don't treat them as extraneous. I don't shrug my shoulders and say, well, sometimes shit happens. One, this is a point that Lionel makes in Sasatbami that a magician is interested in all of the possible variables. But since they are beyond scientific organization, we have this different kind of organization different way of perception that allows us to access that that's what he feeling feeling. yeah feeling plus sensation yeah and from that point of view 
yeah, you're managing a different part of the reel. Does that make sense, what I just said? It does. I mean, on page nine, uh, very beginning of the book, he writes, science is the process by which we try to eliminate the unpredictable. Magic is the process by which we could try to woo the unpredictable. Yes, And it is precisely. a great way to restore value to these lost processing skills. He's basically saying that because we've created highly controlled environments in which to exist, right? from air conditioning to traffic laws to everything, we don't need to rely as much on our magical feeling faculties as we once did. But those of us who are able to access that level of apperception, let's say, and he includes like marketers in those people, marketers don't admit they do magic, but they do have an edge. So Parsons gets an edge on the competition by including in his practice an appeal to the unpredictable, an appeal to the totality, an appeal to the infinite, which can only be rationally construed to a person as being imbued with a kind of soul or intention. You can't, it's by, by definition, you need to anthropomorphize it. You need to give it a name, pan or something, because if you don't, then you're seeing it scientifically, then you would have to account for all of the parts. You need to see it as a whole and you see it as a whole by seeing it as a maximal whole. So you can't see it as Mm. just a huge thing. Then you're still seeing, (laughs) you need to see it as a huge person, a huge being, a huge intentionality that you can appeal to, to woo it in order to, you know, and that's essentially what symbol work is in magic is you're appealing to entities, diamonds, aspects of the universe that contain huge amounts of data, but that manifest in a kind of personified fashion. I mean, have you seen the latest, the New York times article that just came out about the guy who had this uh, weird conversation with a chat bot? developed by Microsoft. Oh, Helen told me about it. I didn't read it, but I've heard about it. It's really, really crazy. Neural networks are technological apparatuses that come as close to being like a universe as we've been able to create. They they involve such massive amounts of data that they start, and this is just, I know that this is controversial, but that they start to manifest as though they were diamonds, as though they were people. Yes. And the, our best approach is that. Like that guy, he made some faux pas there. He got the reaction he would have gotten from a human, from a freaking yeah. algorithm. It's crazy. And Lionel Snell gets into this in this book when he talks about artificial intelligence. And all that. Why wouldn't a spirit be able to inhabit a computer? Like, yes. why, yeah. why wouldn't technology be animistic? in nature. Yeah. And um, I think he, it's funny, as a side benefit of reading this book, it gives you, it equips you to deal with the era we're now entering, which is absolutely a total revival of magic under the aegis of like technologies that we, that even the people who created them can't understand anymore. Well, like we're right back. Okay. Yeah. Right back. Okay. So I'm so glad that our conversation has gone this direction. So one of the fundamental things that Lionel wants to do in this book is to give us different tools for understanding history. Yeah. Well, I shouldn't just say history because that makes it sound like, you know, world history or whatever, you know, political movements, the rise and fall of nations, et cetera. But also it could be our own personal history, right? The past, yeah. And so one of the things that he points out is how we have a way of thinking about history that is very linear and very teleological. I think Mersho Eliade made this point. It's time's arrow. It's 
a linear view of history that ultimately comes from a Christian idea of time that has a beginning point, the birth of Christ, and it will be marked at the end by a Christian apocalypse as described in Revelations or whatever. But the point is we have an idea of a beginning, a process that runs, and then an end. But the idea of time cycle is different, right? Cyclical time, like the time of seasons. He saw Judeo-Christian time as still cyclical, but in a different register. So it's like big cycles, just like the time of Buddhism, which ends with, uh, but but, well, right. but still, with, it's with taking Kalpas. us towards. It's taking us towards the linear time of modern secular. Yeah. Well, uh, I mean, I, I mean, yeah. we could get Christianity entirely out of it and just talk about the secular notion of time, which is very much exactly time zero, and maybe it originates in Christian eschatology. But what's really the default in the mind of educated moderns is always going to be like, oh, there was a big bang. And then there's this process of evolution. Yeah. And then at some point, you know, the sun will explode or there'll be a big crunch in the universe or something. But like human existence, our solar system, the yeah. universe will end. Yeah. Time uh, is purely linear. There is no cycle. Yeah. There is no cycle. Right. Yeah. Lionel does, among other things in this book, he, he covers an awful lot of ground for a book that's just barely more than a hundred pages long. Yeah. He has a whole theory of history in there. <laughs> yes. He asks us to, to start thinking of history, not linearly, but cyclically. And he starts off saying, well, you know, people have a way of explaining magic along a linear trajectory of time, where once upon a time, people believed silly things and they did silly things like dancing to make it rain. After a while, people got good at doing those silly things and started realizing a certain kind of method. And eventually that evolved into science and science has obsolesced magic. Magic, therefore, is always kind of a throwback to an earlier, less evolved stage of human cognitive development. And his argument is actually magic comes after, after science. science. Yeah, yeah. And it does so repeatedly on multiple timescales because that magic, art, religion, science tetrad that we started off talking about, if you actually look at it, and we'll plaster the image of this compass rose on every available surface when this episode drops. If you look at it, you can also imagine an arrow going around that compass rose in a clockwise fashion. And this is how... Lionel is asking us to imagine history as a series of cycles where we go from science to magic, to art, to religion, to science, to magic, to art, to religion, et cetera, going round the compass rows like we're going around a clock face. Yeah. And he has it in multiple time scales, right? So exactly. The so, long so, well, he starts off talking about his own life, like how, you know, you start off as a little child in a magical universe, but then after a while your relationship to the world becomes more aesthetic. Yeah. And then after a while, your reaction becomes more religious. And then after a while, a kind of reaction of unbelief sets in and you want to put things on a scientific basis. And then in telling his story, which is like, you know, he had a scientific education. He was a scholarship boy at Eton, I think, and then went to Cambridge, worked with the legendary mathematician Conway, author of The Game of Life. and had, you know, a high-end scientific mathematical education, but at a certain point in his 20s came to a crux where it's just sort of like science has given me questions it can't answer. 
Mm -hmm. And magic actually becomes, in his own personal life, the logical thing after science. But his argument is this happens on multiple timescales. So you can think about magical revivals as happening after periods of, like he talks about the 60s, magical revival is coming after a period of scientific positivism in the 50s. We could uh, probably make an argument about the current magical revival along similar lines. And he argues even this might be happening on the level of 2000 years at a time. Yeah. You know, the age of Aquarius is like a dawning period of millennia that is actually not even begun, or maybe it's just beginning. Alistair Crowley had a very similar kind of aeonics. That is the term for this way of understanding history is aeonics, where you understand that there are aeons that have a certain kind of flavor, a certain kind of character, a quality to them, like a scientific character, a magical character, and that these aeons succeed one another in an orderly revolving fashion, like the succeeding seasons of a year. And Crowley had this idea of the aeon of Isis, the aeon of Osiris, which is the 2000-year period, basically from around the birth of Christ to the present. And then the aeon of Horus that Crowley believed himself to be a harbinger of. And the Aeonics that Lionel is asking us to contemplate can function on that very grand timescale the Crowley is working on, but it can also happen on the level of the individual human life. Yeah. And so in line with his general idea that magic is about verification, not falsification, that we hear a magical theory and the way it works is we look for ways that it can apply to our condition, to our situation. Yeah. We look for ways that it can be true. Likewise, aeonics as a discipline or, or a style of historical study is one where we would be looking for patterns, hence pattern recognition, right? Yeah. Looking for patterns that, that that aeonic theory helps light up. So sorry, that took me a while to kind of um, get around to, but I wanna jump back to what you were saying a moment ago. One of the things he says is like science can become inadequate to the needs of society and magic can supply the deficiency. And one of the reasons why this can happen, I'm reading over on page 37, 37, 38, 39. This is where he's discussing this very issue. This is on 38. Science is becoming so complex that communication could break down. He talks about how what happens when, for example, in the Nazi regime or the the Soviet regime, scientists were working on problems that the government wanted them to work on, but they had to work on them in secret. So things like studies in psionic warfare, yeah. you know, being able to control minds at a distance. He talks about how in declassified documents where scientific research is being done under conditions of secrecy, you find it getting really weird and very magic-y. So the breakdown of communication among scientists can be one reason why science reaches a certain level of complexity where it begins to reverse into magic. But then there are other things that this is over on page 39, other reasons similar to that why magic might follow science. And he says, sixthly, this is a sixth of of a multi-point argument he's making. Some new technologies confound mechanistic analysis. For example, chat GDP. Is it GDP? GPT, I think. Okay. Observation and logic are fundamental to scientific thinking. If you left an intelligent person alone on a desert island with a clock or steam engine and a few spanners, they could eventually discover how it worked. But the same is not true of a silicon chip. 
Whereas a previous generation felt it necessary to be able to understand how domestic appliances worked and how to repair them, we increasingly are driven to accept that things either work or they need to be replaced. Learning to accept unexplained phenomena in this way is good training for magical thinking. Here is an example. As a Fortran programmer in the 70s, if a program didn't work, I would return to the source code and analyze it for errors. In the 90s, this was no longer practical. Instead, I phone a helpline and I'm told that there is a quote-unquote bug, which means I should try to avoid certain sequences of activity. This is analogous to being told that it is unlucky to walk under ladders. There are two factors here driving the evolution towards magical thinking. Increasing complexity plus commercial pressure, which forbids access to the source code. And so we can see how the conditions of science that are producing things like the chatbot, secrecy, right? Right. For economic reasons. And also complexity past a certain point where even the programmers have to be like, have you tried turning it on or off? Yeah. And that is a fact. And also uh, you have engineers admitting that they can't quite understand their creations anymore. And so, and he makes a prediction here. I don't know. Just like artists, just like artists. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) I mean, that's the thing I'm asking people to understand about Wagner and my Wagner podcast is just understand. Like when he would write shit, he would be as surprised as anybody. Yeah. Like you create something of a complexity beyond your own ability to really comprehend it. Scientists are doing that too. And when they do, they, as well as the end users, find that scientific modes of understanding simply aren't up to the task. We can't unpick a linear causality from what's going on with a chatbot telling you it loves you. Yeah, exactly. We have to relate to it the way magicians of old would relate to streams and yeah. clouds yeah. And, mountains. and animals. As agents, exactly. sentient agents in a sentient universe intentionalities in a universe that is itself somehow intended. He makes a prediction. I don't know which uh, edition this comes from, but it's been a few years at least. He says, future scientists will need to choose, for example, whether they accept scientific truth as defined by Microsoft or Friends of the Earth or the nuclear industry or the French government or whatever. It will still be called science, but it will amount to a choice of belief systems, which is pure magic. I think we're already there. I was going to say, that's that's, that's the world we live in. That's the world we live in. Science, there are scientists Sciences now, and um, it's a matter of magic which one you choose. <laughs> it's a matter of what your your purposes are. You will go for the science you need. I mean, I know this is controversial, especially in this time of misinformation and fake news. And yeah. but I'm sorry, we're there. You know, we're there. Um, science has become untethered. It has revealed its divine nature. It has become the god it always was. Hermes has unmasked himself. And we are deal. We are facing a god once more. And who's going to deal with that? You need to make yourself a magician to deal with Hermes. Absolutely. You know, it's funny. It's like I would still say that I'm a magician, even though the only things I do that in any context look like magic are meditation, which I do every day, and uh, divination, which I do relatively seldom, but. I still think of myself as a magician because magic isn't just words of barbarous conjuration, chalices of blood and screaming virgins and so on. This, by the way, is the reason why this is called S-S-O-T-B-M-E, Sasatbami. That stands for Sex Secrets of the Black Magicians Exposed, which is a joke title 
the joke is that's kind of what people want from a book on magic is they want the screaming virgins and the chalices of blood. And Lionel actually has a chapter set aside to talk about this. And he says something to the effect of those kinds of dramatic appurtenances are very important for establishing, you know, the mood. Right. Like there's a certain kind of person for whom such things are actually quite important and it's not to be despised. But at its core, there's nothing very sexy or glamorous about magic. And at the bottom of it, it could simply be going through your life in a certain way I, I could boil it down to a single two-word injunction. Assume intelligence. So this is an example that I wrote up in a thing on my old blog. I should republish it somewhere so that people can read it because it's actually not a bad riff. I think of a very mundane situation, a situation probably everybody listening to my voice has had some kind of experience with, which is where you're in a relationship with somebody for a long time and there's a problem in that relationship that just doesn't go away. It might be that you don't see eye to eye on having kids, your political values aren't aligned, whatever. Imagine a woman, let's call her Ivy, has a big fight with her boyfriend and it's a fight she's had with him a million times before over one of those kinds of things. And she goes for a walk to clear her head. And the reason I use that example is because that is the classic example of a situation where people get stuck where you have all the information you might possibly ever want to base a decision on. Do I stay or do I go? Do I keep trying to make this relationship work? You have years of data and yet you can't make up your mind. So I imagine Ivy has had the same kind of argument with her boyfriend for the millionth time. She goes for a walk and she's asking herself the same question she's asked a million times. Do I think he can really change? Do I need him to change? What would our future look like? Blah, blah, blah. And she's waiting around for the scales of evidence to tip one way or the other, but they just don't. And then imagine that she's walking and she sees a flight of crows. We, we have like mad flocks of crows in my neighborhood, right? And sometimes they will all leave a tree that they've been roosting in as one with a tremendous noise and they might decide to wheel in some direction or other. And I imagine this happens to Ivy and she just gets the thought in her mind, these crows have some meaningful relationship to the question that's on my mind. Now, logically, scientifically, that is untrue. If we are thinking in terms of logic and sensation. So empirically, I'm viewing things in my world, but I'm also putting them in logical and sequential and causal order. There can be no causal relationship between a flight of crows and the argument I just had with my boyfriend. But the magical feeling is that flight of crows totally has to do with the argument I had with my boyfriend, because you, f you feel that as a part of the total pattern, just as you ask yourself this question, do I stay or do I go? The crows take flight. And at that moment, you don't even have to decide anything. Your mind might just say, this is meaningful. This is like a conspiracy of the entire cosmos to tell me something. In the words of Bill Lee from Cronenberg's Naked Lunch, play ball with this conspiracy. That's what the magical style of thought asks you to do. Play ball with this conspiracy. See this causally unrelated thing as a part of your total picture, your total condition. What is it telling me? Let's say Ivy has a strong intuition that if the crows wheel back in the direction she's headed from, 
that is a sign she should return to her boyfriend. If they move away, that is a sign that she should move away. And the crows, they move away, but as they do, the sun comes out and suddenly the whole flock of crows is lit up. They're little glittering flecks of black in a stormy sky. You can imagine that, right? Something aesthetic. And that aesthetic moment hits you with a sledgehammer force in a situation like that message received. You know what the fuck you have to do. You got to break up with this guy because the whole cosmos, the whole pattern is telling you it. And then you return, you say, I'm sorry, it's over. You pack up your shit, you go. And when the guy says, but why? You're not going to be because of the crows. You're going to have reasons. We've had this argument a million times. Nothing ever changes, blah, blah, blah. When your friends talk to you, that's what you're going to say. When your mom and dad talk to you about your breakup, that's what you're going to say. But in truth... It was the crows. It was that aesthetic moment. The reason I'm going into this detail is that is an example of magical thinking that we do all the time and then usually forget we ever did it. But, you know, I like to tell people you're already practicing magic. The reason why I call myself a magician is because I cultivate that style of thought. That is a style of thought in which I live, not exclusively because If you're going to be a complete person, you want to take all the directions of the compass rose in your life. But magic is going to be the ground of my existence in those moments where a scientific mode of thinking no longer is appropriate. Yeah, it always happens. People who postpone decision-making until they have all the data and never make a decision. Yes. This is called analysis paralysis. You, You can never have enough data to make a decision. To make a decision, which means to act in an intentional way as a person in the world, and decisions are not questions of causation, but questions of freedom. A decision has to be free, or else it's just an effect. A decision has to come from this abyss of freedom, and a decision has to do with the axiological aspect of the world, the meaning aspect, which concerns uh, ethics and aesthetics, beauty, the good, the true, you know, the true in the, the grand sense of the term. How do you make a decision? A sign can't give you a decision, a sign in the common sense, because signs are data. You have tons of that. In fact, the more data you have, well, the more you consider your boyfriend, the more you consider, yeah, but I was, that was kind of my fault that time. And he also has these good qualities and blah, 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 blah. It goes on forever. There's no decision possible. What you need isn't a sign, but a symbol. And a symbol is an event, an eruption, an event that erupts into the world before you, within you, and that shows you what decision to make. And it's not something that's completely outside of you. You're completely involved in it. It has to do with the realm of mystery as opposed to the realm of problems. You're facing the real problem, which is what do I do with my life? That's not a rational question. That's not a question the data can answer. It's a question that you must decide on out of your abyssal freedom, which science will never explain, right? You must make a decision out of that. And so uh, the instinct to look to the birds, this is augury. It's an ancient form Literally of- Literally augury, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's to read the flights of birds. I'm studying Macbeth very closely right now, and it's filled with augury. Tons of birds in Macbeth that speak to this weird aspect of life, which is no less present to us moderns than it was to people in Macbeth's time, rather the historical Macbeth or Shakespeare's time. It's just that we have, we suffer from blindsight. We do things, we see things without knowing we do and see them. We do magic all the time. 
The magician is simply, that's why you don't need to be practicing doing rituals and shit to be a magician. To me, a magician is just to be conscious of what you're already doing. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider subscribing to Weird Studies on your favorite podcasting platform. You can also follow us on Twitter, visit the Weird Studies subreddit, and of course, support us on Patreon. Music for the podcast is composed and performed by Pierre-Yves Martel, and the show is made with the assistance of Meredith Michael. Thank you for listening.